You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans, and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change, and when should we start building our rafts? Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery Mystery of Everything, Everything. available everywhere you get your podcasts. Monster House presents... It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. Well, getting this episode delivered turned out to be trickier than expected. I had planned to take Thursday off work as a personal day to catch up on some home projects, including getting this episode uploaded. But then Hurricane Zeta showed up with different plans. Luckily, nobody around here was hurt but the winds knocked down many, many trees, and my home county had 90,000 people without power, including me. The road to our neighborhood had five trees down that I know of, most of which landed on power lines. Three of those trees were literally suspended in the air by the power lines, while the others brought everything crashing to the ground. My neighbor and I hit the roads the next morning with chainsaws, and we got the road passable, but the power company didn't get things running again until today, this afternoon, and we still don't have internet our phones, and I don't expect we will, probably until Monday or Tuesday, honestly. We had enough regional businesses with power that we were able to save most of our food with ice and coolers, but it's still a mess. But we're safe. Others are surely not so lucky. To be honest, that's how I usually get through every kind of tragedy or inconvenience. I remind myself that others surely have it worse, and I try to find the positives. And I did find some. In the lack of power and internet, my family helped out around the neighborhood. Neighbors who hadn't talked in months because of the virus stood safely distanced and caught up on how things were going and how they were handling things. And there were no politics. There were just good neighbors being good neighbors. And in the night, I went downstairs and found my daughters at the breakfast table playing a game of chess by candlelight. It was so beautiful. This morning, the cell tower came back on, and I was able to check in with friends, and I told them about the chess game by candlelight. 
Party like it's 1899, said one friend. Fair enough. Well, speaking of the way things used to be, this episode is a serious walk down nostalgia lane. Karen and I were lucky enough to snag an interview with the author of a book that was absolutely, unquestionably influential on both of us. In 1977, the British publisher Usborne released a book by Christopher Maynard and a slew of fantastic artists. In the U.S., it was released as the Scholastic Fun Fact Book of Ghosts. In the U.K., it was part of a series, The World of the Unknown, Ghosts. And many other countries had versions in their native languages. Monster Talk listeners would definitely recognize many of the topics inside from our coverage on this show. We call it Monster Talk, the science show about monsters, but frequently we've acknowledged that it's also Monster Talk, the show where skeptics talk about the stuff that scared them senseless as children. And Christopher Maynard's work definitely did that in the most delightful way. From Jeff the Talking Mongoose, to Spectral Hounds, to the most haunted village in England, the pages are filled with familiar phantom friends of this show. So we should have had a little segment here where Karen and I wished you all a happy Halloween. And on behalf of her and myself, we do. But I wasn't able to get that part of the episode put in the way I wanted to because I have no internet and I can't easily get things constructed in a coffee shop parking lot and still get this out to you by Halloween. So please forgive me for not having this prepared quite as produced as I'd like it to be. But know that Karen and I both wish you the very best, the very safest, and the very spookiest Halloween you can all manage in these strange times. And if you aren't listening to this in October, that's okay. On Monster Talk, we keep Halloween in our hearts every day and hope you do too. Monster Talk. Uh, Well, it's wonderful to be able to talk with you because, uh, you know, we've been wanting to to speak with you for some time. So this is very exciting for us. Karen and I both read your book quite young in our lives. Um, so mm-hmm. um, I didn't, honestly, I wasn't even sure what book I had read. The I remembered distinctly reading about Jeff the Talking Mongoose. And, mm-hmm. and spe- like there's the little sentence at the end that says, could this have been Jeff? And that stuck with me. And I couldn't figure out why. Like I, I don't really throw books away. I still got a lot of my scholastic books from when I was a kid. And uh, but this one was gone, and ultimately I bought a, a new copy of the U.S. version. Uh, what? Well, no, I bought a vintage copy of the U.S. version and the reprint of the British version. But the the U.S. version has on the cover it says "Ghosts, Demons, and Spirits from the World Beyond," and that is probably why I don't have the book because my mom is a really hardcore fundamentalist and would not have liked the word demons. She would have probably ditched it. Demons really, or sp- well, spirits might have cheered her up. She could have got some Georgia rye or something. Yeah. Like that kind of thing. <laughs> uh, well, my, my story, uh, I grew up in Australia. If you can't tell from my accent. Part of Australia? From Sydney, the Northern beaches of Sydney. Okay. So I think our version was the same version that you have in the UK. And um, so I, my brother actually received the book as an award for being top of his class when he was in high school. I grew up in a, an atheist household, um, but at the same time, my mother didn't like things like ghosts and aliens. and um, So she, she pretty much confiscated the book from him, and I found it tucked away in a cupboard somewhere and claimed it as mine, and, and that was the beginning of a career of this kind of thing. So uh, Blake and I both have a, a long history of 
doing podcasts, writing articles, doing research and investigations into ghosts and paranormal claims. And so it really influenced me and I, it seems to have influenced a lot of a lot of people, including some famous people as well. I have to say, all of this came as a complete surprise to me about six, seven months ago when I was first <laughs> contacted by Osborne Publishing. This was a, a project that I had worked on years, I mean, years ago. We're really we're talking about, I guess, 76 we would have worked on. Mm -hmm. It was published in 77. So, yeah, we were always working about nine, ten months ahead uh, of publication date, that kind of thing. And in those days, um, there was no feedback loop, I guess is the only way to say it. So we would right. produce these books. Um, oh, I don't know where to start with this. Uh, there were a team of us. Uh, so I was the writer. I was the guy who did the gray bits. There, was an there were illustrators. There were photographers who came in. There were designers. There was my copy editor. So we must have been, God knows, eight, ten people uh, wow. all together working on the various parts of the book. Uh, the designer and myself would have driven would have driven it forward, as, as it were, uh, mm -hmm. and mapped out what we covered and so on. But everybody was essential. I mean, those gorgeous pictures of dogs leaping out at you, a black shuck and, you know, all those ghostly images, that would have been the interpretation by the uh, artists would have picked our, taken our brief and run with it, basically. And the more spectacular they could make it, the happier we were. So was, yeah, some of those illustrations was, are very creepy. Yeah, it was, it was a sort of one of those things. But I, I probably would have come off, I might have been doing another project, sort of, you know, six months before that, I might have been working on an astronomy book. Or I was a busy writer in those days. I worked on all kinds of projects. I think for Osborne, I might have also done something about airplanes, if I remember. Anyhow, there was there was a bunch of stuff, and we were very busy with it, doing those mm -hmm. kinds of books. And it was such a joy to be doing them at the time. We didn't know that there could even be such a thing as feedback. So... As far as we were concerned, we were aware that someone in the United States would have bought it and published it, and someone in Australia would have published it, uh, and so on. And that applies to other languages as well. It went out in Swedish, it's in German, it's in French. Uh, God knows it's probably even in Korean. I remember seeing a Japanese copy, which I think you read from the other end first. So you start at the left and you work to the right, So wow. and so on. So we would be aware that a country might have bought it, but that was it. We knew nothing at all about what readers were doing. Uh, we didn't really have any any link. I don't think we even went on. We didn't do school tours. Uh, I don't remember doing libraries or anything like that. Those were embryonic days, just as mm -hmm. we were trying to figure out how to do, well, they were, for the time, and even nowadays, quite complicated books to do. You really need to have people who are skilled in design and illustration and, and, and able to, to write in that very concise way as well. So there's a real craft to it. Uh, you can do all of that stuff on computers nowadays. If you're mm -hmm. skilled, no problem. But in those days, it was all hand-whittled. And uh, took us a while, a uh, huge amount of fun, but none of us had a clue what the readers were saying or thinking. And the stories that I've been hearing this last 
well, since last summer, I guess, when it first started, broke over me, uh, are amazing. Because uh, like you, people have been talking about sitting there in their school libraries and reading this and then reading it again and reading it again and again. <laughs> I'm, I'm amazed by this sort of obsessive behavior. It wasn't quite what I had in mind. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was vaguely expecting people like you to be coloring in it <laughs> or, 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 or filling out the captions and, you know, and cutting it up with scissors when the teacher wasn't looking. Certainly had those days too, but no, that was absolutely one of my favorite books and, and the other Usborne series too. Uh, with the the haunted houses and the vampires and the mysterious powers, did you work on those books as well? I was on the ghost book. The people there, another team got together on the. I think another writer came in on UFOs, and uh, there was the. I think it was a vampires book as well. Uh, no, they, they were other people came in on those ones. But what what the the way that these things were done in those days is each individual book would appear first as a hardback. And that was the school and library edition. Uh, then as a paperback, which would go out into the bookshops uh, and anywhere else that was stocking this thing. And then finally, a bind-up would appear. So all three in that series would come together. Uh, uh, I think it's a cunning bit of publishing in there that just basically says if you can... You, if, if you come up with a good idea, run with it for as long as you can in as many <laughs> yeah. versions as you could yeah. do <laughs> and, and keep going. That's the way everybody thought in those days. But uh, so we were we were fairly frugal with what I mean, we, we got as much mileage out of these books as we could. But mm -hmm. we never, ever had that thing. Uh, and it would have been quite amazing if we had known about you. I don't think it would have changed anything. But it would certainly have encouraged us in ways uh, that we, I don't know, I don't know where that would have taken us. We certainly would love to have here. you would have made our day, let's put it that way. <laughs> you really, really would have made our day. I mean, that would have, we were all in our 20s, so a bunch of 20-year-olds would have oh, ended, wow. up, ended up in the pub, and we were all working out of Covent <laughs> Garden in those days, uh, which it was very seedy uh, back in the 1970s, but was just becoming a fashionable part of London uh, as it was being redeveloped. So it was stuff. It used to be a, a food market, a, you know, a fruit and veg market, which meant uh, it was full of pubs. That part of the world was full of pubs. And a lot of our work used to take place after after. Well, in pubs, basically, we just we'd nip around the corner and sit there and talk about how we were going to do something. And we'd sit there with the artists and celebrate whatever wonderful piece of artwork they brought into us. And I remember mm -hmm. uh, our advisor was Eric Maple. And a couple of times we just spent long hours in the pub with him, just, I don't know, asking him, just throwing everything at him, trying to find out as much. He had a lifetime of experience uh, working in this in this field of psychic research and so on. And he'd written any number of books as well. So he was very helpful to steer us toward parts of the folklore and parts of the um, what was in libraries and in newspaper cuttings libraries as well. He was quite good on that sort of stuff. So we spent a lot of time together, uh, yeah, working hard in pubs. So we've got quite a few questions we'd like to, to go through, and you have touched upon a lot of these points already, but um, I think it'd be fun to, to go through them. But uh, so what is the story behind you writing this book? You say that you were working from project to project at the time. Were you specifically commissioned for this book? And what's the, the story behind it? 
I may have worked with the uh, chief designer at the time. The design director might have known me already. Uh, and I would have been on another project. It was a fairly small world. There were, I don't know, possibly a thousand of us altogether in the entire country who were able to produce and were producing books like this, kids' information books that were put together in this complicated way. So we would have known of each other, and I may have already done some previous work. It was the very early years of Osborne, so they were just starting out I suspect that I knew about half the staff from previous companies where we'd all worked together. So we tended to move from publisher to publisher as we got promotions and moved around in that way. So I would have been known to the company. Uh, and I probably just somebody just rang me up and said, Chris would be perfect for this kind of thing. Uh, let's see if he's free. Uh, okay. So they would have booked me for a slot to do a book. Are you, can you start in March or something of that? It would have a conversation would have been along those lines. Chris, are you free to get started stuck in in March? We've got something. Uh, we're going to need to deliver it by January. That kind mm -hmm. of a kind of a conversation. Great. So I, a hired gun, I guess you have to hired <laughs> and sorry, a hired pen. We didn't have guns. This is the UK. We don't have guns. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Okay, this is a biographical question, but uh, you know, as an American, I'm listening to your accent, and you you don't sound as British as a lot of the people from England. First of all, Canadians don't have accents; they just speak beautifully. Oh, yeah. American accents, they don't have Australian <laughs> accents; they just talk without an accent. Uh -huh. So I'm a Canadian boy, uh, and I uh, at, after university uh, it, at McGill in Montreal. Uh, so I'm from Montreal. I'm a Montreal boy. Uh, and uh, after university, uh, it was the early 1970s, I pitched up in Europe, I traveled around a little bit, looked at things and ended up coming and spending a year at university in, uh, here in London, in fact. I was studying international relations at the time. Uh, I didn't get that much out of it. I didn't really enjoy it that much. But if you ever want to invade a small country and you want a bit of background, I'm, I'm your man. I can tell you all about it. From that, I drifted into publishing. I started working in publishing, which was uh, quite by chance. Uh, I can't remember. I, some, I must have bumped into somebody. I went for an interview. I think the pub publishing is a very was and probably is a very female-dominated uh, business. Not at the top. There's always a glass ceiling, mind you. But uh, lots of women. I remember going for an interview for my first job working on an encyclopedia project, uh, an ecology encyclopedia. Uh, and uh, I think I was the only man who showed up and my boss was a woman. And I think I might have been offered the job on the basis of my sex. I don't know for sure, <laughs> but I know everyone else was a woman who was applying for the job. So that's how I started in publishing. Wow, interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Which didn't make me an expert in uh, ghosts particularly. <laughs> or the supernatural, but I was very good uh, at, well, I'm blowing my own trumpet, so obviously I am very right. good, but, but I, I was quite good at explaining fairly dry things in a lively way. The, the book does that very well, but they're not dry things. <laughs> well, they're not dry things at all, but, it, but not if you approach them, you can. I mean, you can make anything dull, but I, sure. I'm the sort of guy you want to bring in and to explain mortgages to teenagers because <laughs> I can make it lively. <laughs>
So you were talking a little bit about uh, the the research that you did, uh, but in the days prior to the internet, how did you research these stories and how did you choose which ones that you wanted to include? There was a really good reference library in, in Westminster, in the centre of London. There's a really good Westminster reference library. It was, was really terrific in those days. There's a couple of newspaper libraries uh, around in London and in the north of London as well. So London had tons of universities. As well as that, there was the Society for Psychic Research, which had its uh, it's got a lived in a building at the time, uh, not far away from where we were working. I used to go over there and and work through their library. Uh, I ended up discovering Eric Maple along the way and uh, roping him in as a consultant. So we in a, we put our tentacles out in that way. But basically, you're talking old fashioned sitting in libraries research going back as far as you can, asking librarians to steer you to stuff they may have, uh, they may know about, but aren't necessarily around. So yeah, working through the Dewey Decimal System to find out everything <laughs> possible about ghosts <laughs> and spookiness and so on. And there's a huge, there was, I mean, there was a lot of publishing that had been done for, oh, a good hundred years. I mean, I, mm -hmm. I wasn't short of material no. uh, at all. Especially stories in the UK. Well, obviously, stories in the UK. I mean, that's the that's the thing about it. And I, that was interesting because there is an international section that we did, and we started casting it a bit wider and looking at ghosts in history and looking at ghosts around the world as well. Uh, material was thinner on the ground, but there was certainly stuff there, uh, and it was interesting. Uh, so uh, we just managed to sort of follow the trail as far as it could take us, uh, on the assumption that. It was a, a, a universal thing. Ghosts are universal. As far as I know, there isn't a, a single society on Earth that doesn't have some reference to ghosts in one form or another. I'm, you guys will probably know more about this than I will, actually. But at the time, my research certainly led me to that impression that the entire globe is filled with ghosts. Mm -hmm. And that led us to hitting on this idea that the attitude we would take to the subject uh, our approach to it would be as if we were intergalactic archaeologists. We just arrived on Earth from planet Zog, and we discovered that these people here on Earth kept talking about things that you couldn't see as if they were real. Mm -hmm. And on that basis, we do our research. So no particular axe to grind. We didn't even know that there was a do you believe in ghosts or not would have really puzzled us at the time. We wouldn't have understood what the belief system was. So we were just investigating. We were looking for bodies, in other words. It's a superb book. I, it's The amazing thing to me is, I, I guess you probably noticed this uh, as they were going to reprint it. Mm. It doesn't really need updating. Nothing much has changed. <laughs> you hit on something really interesting, in fact. That's that's terrific. Uh, you're right. It doesn't need upgrading. It's It was fine. Um, I think they managed to lose the film. So they didn't. They weren't even able to go back to the old film of the book. It was so long ago. And nobody kept any of that stuff. But the, the scanning technology nowadays is pretty fantastic. But I have to say, in the time that we did it, now we're talking about... Well, almost 50 years ago. Gosh, you're making me sound uh, I've been around for a while. <laughs> Tip us fugit, right? <laughs> well, <laughs> time flies when you're having fun. But uh, one of the things that we didn't manage to get in, uh, the book is 32 pages long, and I, I had probably 
researched enough information for 96 pages. Uh, so we really had to cut and cut and cut to get it all in. But one of the ideas that we we bumped into but didn't really do anything with is this notion that ghosts are being formed all the time. And although the ghosts we refer to in the book are to a greater or lesser extent historical, some go back to the Romans and earlier than that even, but this notion that in the last 50 years, for example, since the book was written, thousands of ghosts must have been produced or generated or been born. I don't know if you get born a ghost or you how you make a ghost. But if you think that there have been, I don't know, plane crashes, there have been acts of terrorism, there have been explosions, there have been all kinds of mayhem, terrible things, volcanoes have exploded. There must be ghosts galore that a hundred years from now, people will be researching and digging around and finding reference to. And so the so we missed that. We missed that part of it. But uh, other than that, no, you're right. It didn't change. And it looks pretty fresh when I see it in front of me now as well. No, it's great. And uh, the, the book's got a lot of sentimental value for me and for Blake and I think for a lot of our listeners. So why do you think that the popularity of the book has been so enduring and it's inspired so many people? <laughs> Weirdly, I was going to ask you that question because <laughs> you're, you're the ones with the memory. You've taken me, you've blindsided me totally. I'm sitting here thinking, well, no, it was a book and we had a great time doing it and it was really fun and it did really well back in the day and it got reprinted a bunch of times and everybody felt really good about it and, um, you know, there were no complaints among the group of us who put it all together. But mm -hmm. you are actually talking about memory, which wow. is... A completely different thing because you're talking about your memory from childhood and you're talking about I guess a formative memory because it's certainly not winked out it hasn't just sort of dissolved into dust like so many childhood memories and it's alive it's more alive for you I think than it is for me or what what's alive for me is a different experience which is the craft and the arts and the art and craft of putting a book together and the pleasure that that brings, but you are actually talking about something far more powerful. And I yeah. want to ask you the question, what on <laughs> earth was it that, that you were walking, I can see you with your sandwich box in hand, coming <laughs> into school one day, and then walking out at the end of that day with sudden something had happened. What, what happened? We've been doing this show, Monster Talk, for a decade. We've, we've, we have probably, 30 to 40,000 regular listeners. We've had more than 7 million downloads of episodes. But why we have a show is because when I met Karen, we both knew about Jeff the Talking Mongoose. And that is an unusual thing to know about, right? And, and some other stories too, like Borley Rectory and Lord Dufferin. Well, for sure. But for me, Karen was the first person that I met who also knew about Jeff the Talking Mongoose. That has to be the best pickup line I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't a pickup line, don't worry. <laughs> yeah. Was not, no, no, no. But, but it did, I, I feel like it gave me an immediate uh, understanding that this was another person who was into this crazy shit, to be blunt, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
we're like each other. There was a connection there. You know, I'd grown up in Australia. He'd grown up in the South in the US. And yet we had this immediate bond. Yeah, absolutely. My very first memory of Jeff the Talking Mongoose yes. comes from your work. So, I mean, I can't say we wouldn't have come to the same sort of meeting. We wouldn't have the show. I can't say for sure because you can't run your entire life backwards. But, but it certainly facilitated the existence of this show. So to that, yeah, I, I'd say that's the impact. I mean, we, we these stories... Uh, the the you know some of the artwork's very iconic. I mean the one eyed dog in particular. Mm -hmm. The that's woof, oh yeah, like yeah. shock. <laughs> but but for me it was learning about. I was haunted by Jeff the Talking Mongoose. Absolutely haunted. Right. So, so right. yeah, that that's that's what really stuck with me. And you were yeah. about what ten years old? No, I was. Uh, <laughs> let's see, seventy seven. Yeah. Uh, I would have been eight. Yeah, yeah. I was yeah. one in '77. So. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't come across the book until the '80s. Okay. So. All right. Well, yeah. All right. It had a it had a reasonable shelf life, and it was around. It was certainly published for a long period of time. But that's really fascinating. Were there other books that you remember? Do you have a list of books from school that were that were that powerful in some way or another? Uh, there is a uh, on the track of. Sasquatch, I think, is the title. There's a, <laughs> All right. a gr green library binding with no cover. Okay. Um, I, I could turn around right. and find it. But I, yeah, that one I also tracked down because it was extremely influential for my... We, we do monsters mostly. We, we both love ghosts and that sort of thing. Okay. But uh, yeah, the, 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 the original premise of the show was probably more cryptozoological. Right. And, or, or, you know, yeah. you... Eventually, you run out of monsters, but we we <laughs> we've moved on into other things about memory and psychology yeah, yeah. and sociology yeah. and all that sort of thing. But yeah, yeah. But those 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 are the two. I mean, there's um, uh, there's a there's a Greek mythology book yeah. whose title I don't know how to pronounce the author's name. Yeah, yeah. other things like that. Yeah, there's maybe four, maybe five. Everyone. I mean, I've done a number of talks and I've you know addressed a few. Uh, favorite ghost societies, among other things. But uh, over the last few months, uh, the story is very similar that these that sort of 40, 50 year old people wander up to me and start telling me about this this experience, this childhood experience that really moved them and has stayed with them and lives with them still. And I stand there blinking and thinking, my God, I, I didn't really set out to do that. I mean, I'm sorry if I got in your way. I didn't manage, I didn't want to clutter up your life with weird thoughts. That wasn't the intention. But I am also moved by it. And I like that people can hook a particular book and a particular time in their life and they can anchor that period of time with something that they who they are today or what interests them today. I mean, I think it's marvelous that you can trace it back to that. You've had a journey and an experience completely different from mine, completely different. There's no there's barely any overlap between the two other than I can say, well, there are, are actually a couple of books that in a similar slightly different way, I guess, stayed with me from my own childhood, that nothing about ghosts in there at all. Uh, yeah. But it's lovely that we produce something that powerful. It's taken 50 years almost for the affirmation for that to bubble up to the surface. And I'm really quite moved by you, really, and your and the stories that you guys tell me. Um, I might, I'm bemused as well. I'm, I'm a bit puzzled by it. But I'm I'm really pleased 
I guess the nearest I can come up with is if I had written a piece of music and made a, and we'd recorded it and then we just wandered off and sold insurance for the rest of our lives. But we discovered that, you know, years later, people are sampling this music or playing again. And this has become, you know, something really special. And yeah, that still has a life of, of its own. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, consciousness, philosophy, UFOs, ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose, it kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audio book. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand and probably won't understand. That's our whole show. (laughs) So join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. So I, I think you've basically... You've created something that's still alive because it's your memory and lives with you. For me, I'm looking at a, a reprint of, an, of a book that I worked on a long time ago and uh, trying desperately to remember what we were thinking about and doing way back when. Uh, and there's a big gap between the two, but I'm really pleased that it lives on with you. And maybe that's an affirmation of what ghostliness is. It could be the ghostliness of thoughts. Just that, those thoughts. Just exist within your you got within your heads, and you guys are living versions of this uh, a ghost idea, I guess. And yeah, and there are lots of us, and I think the reach of the book just across the anglophone world. Uh, I mean, the fact that I grew up in Australia, and there's Blake in in the US, and and other kids in in the UK, uh, that the reach was really far and wide. And um, I, I just think for me, the book really captured my imagination, and it was at a time where you know, I'm five or six and I'm formulating an understanding of the world, the natural world. And uh, friends started to talk about ghost stories and their experiences. And I didn't know where I stood, if I was a believer, or if I didn't believe in these things, if I was more skeptical. Um, but I think a lot of these stories were taboo too, because not, necessar- not necessarily for religious reasons, but I think it was the kind of thing that you didn't really want to talk about. It was just a lot of people have a bad impression of that kind of thing. But um, yeah, I just think the nostalgic element is, is absolutely 
um, critical to the success of the book, the continued success of the book. And I looked for other books that were like your book and there was nothing else really around um, that was that interesting. I went to the library and again, this is in the 1980s in Australia and there were lots of old uh, books, sort of compendiums of stories of ghosts that were maybe 100 years old in the UK. So you did have stories like the Lord Dufferin urban legend and, and other tales that were like that. But obviously the writing was of a different era and so it was harder to understand. So really for me this was uh, just a very seminal book and the, there's even today nothing out there that is as good. Right. Well, uh, I, wonderful to hear that. I mean, we did. We, we thought we were doing something quite different. There, I'll tell you a little story. There, uh, curiously, uh, London at that time, and it was sort of a London thing. I mean, it, it spread out a little bit, but it was very much a London thing. There, the there was a huge flourishing of art colleges. Uh, and people coming out of the art colleges, so designers, illustrators, and this sort of thing, bumped up uh, again with people like myself who came through universities. Uh, and we started putting these books together with that marriage of the words and the pictures in a in this kind of uh, how can I say in this? Well, it's very compact. I mean, these are these are you know they're little. These are almost like these. Some of these stories are almost little haikus. They're so brief, mm -hmm. but we managed to get a huge amount of information into this very compact uh, and powerful way uh, uh, vehicle. These types of information books. So London at the time had become a center for these sorts of information books, uh, and they were produced with a view to being able to sell them around the world because, believe it or not, there aren't enough people in the UK buying books for children to make the economics of this work. You actually need to be able to get the Australians on board and the Americans on board. But did anyone ever tell you the story about the about the, fin the Finnish story? Do you know about the Finnish story of this book? So it wasn't no. just... So in Finland... So I don't know. Tell me what you know about Finland. I know there's a Monty Python song about it's yeah, a country. I was just going to say there's a Monty Python song. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever. Yeah. Well, Finland. There you go. We've exhausted Finland. Let's move on. No, in <laughs> Finland, this book was published and finished. Now it's a small country. There's not that many people. I think. And um, when the boys who did the film. Uh, there was a ghost film that was produced that Reese Shearsmith was involved with and a really beautiful uh, film that was uh, put together, uh, an animated film. Uh, when it was taken to Finland to uh, a, um, I think there was, an, there was an event, there was a festival, there was a festival of spooky films or something. Anyhow, they showed the, they showed the film that and uh, talked about in the talk afterwards, in the chat after the film, uh, the filmmaker stood up and told the story about being, uh, he was moved to make the film by, this, by the book. He referred to the book and the entire Finnish audience went, yeah, that was the best book in our library. We all read that. That was fantastic. <laughs> and he was amazed to discover there were a couple of hundred people in the audience leaping about in their seats, doing those Finnish things that make a lot of noise. Anyhow, word of this got back to 
the Finnish publisher, the original Finnish publisher. And they started bombarding him online with stuff. Listen, get the put the book out again. We want our kids to see it. Do it again. So he actually knocked out 3,000 copies, which is a big print run in Finland. And it took off like a rocket and sold out. And word of this filtered back to... Osborne here in the UK, at which point they started getting, or some of the brighter sparks in Osborne, I think the marketing department is quite hot on these sort of things, understood this stuff about what was happening out there in social media, where people were chatting about it, and they could see what people were saying. And it turned out that uh, there was enough chatter going on for the publisher to go, okay, we'll do something about this. We'll, you know, we'll run off a thousand copies of this book uh, but, you know, it's years later. No one's going to go for this sort of thing. And they published it and it took off and they reprinted it before it actually came out and it took off some more. And I think they sold, I don't know, 10, 12,000 copies of it in the space of about three or four months. So it was the Finns who are responsible for the resurrection <laughs> in a weird roundabout way. But the books were sold in German and in French and in Italian and in God knows what you could get them in Hebrew. So these the, the books traveled around the world. They really did. So the book was resurrected, or you might say, us born again. <laughs> Should have warned you about his puns. <laughs> <laughs> no, you've just, you know, you've given Usborne a whole other sort of line. They, Usborne again could be a whole new series. of. <laughs> I guess it could, couldn't it? <laughs> I think it's brilliant. <laughs> yeah, you deserve a bottle of something good for that. Yep. <laughs> or something Anyhow. bad. Or something. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So, uh, I mean, we've been gushing about how much we love the book, but you've also got a number of famous fans who've come forward. So like uh, Reese Shearsmith from the League of Gentlemen and Nick Frost. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And I think I think didn't Reese write an introduction to the new he edition? Did. He did. He that did. Came it. Out. He did that. He was. And again, his his introduction said, "You know, my childhood was in the 1970s. I was obsessed with horror and the supernatural and strange things. And this was the book." that did it for me. And uh, as I grew older, it stayed with me. And uh, it's, you know, it's made him the man he is today, but it's, it's given him a whole world that he can refer to. But that was sparked originally by him just sitting there in the library, reading and rereading and rereading this thing. And I think that's as interesting as anything else is that it wasn't just the, you didn't just read it once. There was something mm -hmm. about it that must have pluck people's imagination or youngsters' imagination that made them go back to it again and again. And it makes me think that the kids who were reading it were having a conversation with it, an inner conversation on some level, mm -hmm. uh, and reflecting on it. And I assume you guys were doing the same thing. Whatever it is that, that, uh, that brought you to it obviously made it stay and made it part of that inner conversation we all have with ourselves. Indeed. The way you've described it, it sounds like you went on with your career without ref being aware of how much this book was mm -hmm. impacting people. So what what other things have you worked on? And are there, there are books that, that we might lead people to? Yeah. <laughs> I was a busy writer. Uh, I was a hardworking boy. I would write, I don't know, five or six books a year. Uh, I was, you know, and uh, it went on for a good long time. So uh, I probably worked on, I'd say, about 80 odd projects that I can think of. So there's about 80 books out there. Um, this is September is a lovely time of year because I get still get some royalties uh, and they come through <laughs> in September. 
even though I haven't worked on any books, not since, my last books were oh, the late 90s. So I haven't, it's been 20, over 20 years now since I've written any kids' books, but they're still mm-hmm. out there and they're still being photocopied and borrowed and all kinds of weird stuff. So I still get some residual royalties in September. That's uh, one of my favorite months of the year for that reason. <laughs> <laughs> along with a, you know, mellow fruits and all of that stuff. But, um, yeah, uh, so I would have, if you Google Christopher Maynard author and look at images, you'll see book after book after book that I have worked on. Uh, Most of them are long out of print uh, Mm -hmm. at this point. But uh, I was, yeah, I was a hardworking writer of kids' information books. That's what I did. And there were other people like me. I wasn't the only one by any means. and uh, it depended entirely on our relationships with publishers. What happened is that uh, computers really tore into that. And the internet, of course, tore into this whole the whole business. So what happened is that the print numbers started to decline dramatically in the same way that newspapers have been hard hit by the internet and by the way we do things. So the way these things were produced and the fact that you could somebody could sit in korea and you know six guys could get together around their computers in korea and knock out the world of the unknown ghosts in korean and do an equivalent version of that and run off 500 copies and and have some fun with that became possible so it unpacked what we were doing and took it into another place and i reached that point in my career toward the end where publishers started shrinking. Uh, yeah, with a bit of a COVID sort of experience when you think about it. Uh, one minute there would be publishers there, there then they wouldn't be there. And one of my last memories was being commissioned to do a book on, <laughs> weirdly, The Black Death. Anyhow, I did a, I did a really roar. I did a terrific. I was given a lot of freedom. I have to say, people were very kind to me. They let me run with my imagination. So I've, I've produced. I've written a book about insects in which I interview the insects. The insects have lots to say for themselves. Believe me, being a flea is really tough when there's lots of, you know, powders and scratchy dogs trying to get rid of you and so on. So it's nice to hear from the insects' point of view. Uh, And in this case, I wrote a book about the Black Death, which was really good. It was uh, quite a stonking book, in fact. And by the time I delivered the manuscript, the entire department had been fired. Uh, I still got paid. And I thought, this is really cool. I just have to go away for a month or two, write something, and someone will pay me. And I don't have to go through the protracted process of actually editing it. (laughs) Do I like this or don't I? Anyhow, it kind of, I drifted away at that point. I, I reached that stage where I felt I had to do something else in life uh, and moved on and have done other things since then. Uh, fun, but not nearly as much fun as these. Uh, so, yeah, so my career spans about 1970s till about 2000, uh, that period. And, uh, yeah, uh, anything, any subject you can care to think of, uh, I've probably written a book about it. <laughs> That's fantastic. Well, no, this is a sort of mechanics question. The, yeah. the, you've talked a little bit about the art. So the art department, I'm assuming, was led by David Jeffries. Yes, and David then, was the art director, yeah. And then there are illustrations by Roland Berry, Gordon Davies, yep. John yep. Francis, Brian Lewis, Malcolm yep. McGregor, and Michael Roth. 
Did you work with the artists closely, or did you provide them text and they provided the art? How, how did that work back and forth? Like, Let's say if you open the page in the book, uh, that page would have existed in prototype form as emptiness, but with grid lines all over it, a great big A3 sheet. And my, I would have come up with the theme for the page, and I would have worked with David, uh, the, uh, allocating space on the page where we would have talked about one story uh, or another story. So I'm, I've opened up my book at the moment to 1415, which has Jeff the Mongoose on it. Uh, <laughs> but there's also a fabulous piece of art on there. Oh, yeah. That, uh, of uh, the uh, Phantom Hound, Black Shuck, the Phantom Hound. And I do have a memory of John Francis bringing that into the office uh, it was, oh, two or three times bigger than this. So it would have been a very large piece of of, uh, of cardboard, of, of backing board. And uh, it's been reduced and reduced and reduced to get the density of the colors down. So it's about a third of its original size. But we stood it up in the office on the wall and they all went, wow, you've really done it, John. That's amazing. <laughs> he would have had a brief from us. So he would have seen my script. We'd have, we would have told him what we were thinking of. We would have then let him run with it. So the fact that he's got a, a full moon behind the dog, and uh, and he's and he's you know done something with the field, and he's got the you know the dog is just about to leap on you and slavering the whole bit. I mean that's John just using poetic license. So he would have amazed us with a piece of artwork like that. We would have been over the moon with delight at what he produced. And that's the way it would have worked. And we would have briefed him as extensively. We would have given him a piece of space. Um, I might have even supplied him with photocopies of things that we knew about, of other versions. Other people had done illustrations of uh, of hounds, you know, that whole Hounds of the Baskerville thing, a big black hound on the moors and so on. I mean, that's a theme that comes up any number of times. So we would have given him everything we had, but it would have been his interpretation. So the artist magic happens at that yeah. point where he mm -hmm. sits there in his studio and suddenly just cuts loose. And yeah. uh, we were very happy. That's a, it's a stunning piece of art. That one in particular, it's uh, yeah. it, in comics terms, it's, it's spanning two pages yeah. And it's it's breaking out of the frame, so it, the yeah. the the dog is like it's in a it's sort of yeah. rounded cornered rectangle, but it's actually yeah. popping out of the frame, uh, which okay. it's a really so, nice effect. Uh, we're back to the boys in uh, art colleges, so they would have been sitting in art colleges, and one of the things that they would have been taught or they would have figured out for themselves is. You contain a piece of art and then you break the boundaries of it if you really, really want to make it powerful. So uh, that was that was, you know, one of the tricks of the trade that they had all all discovered and they all knew about. They would uh, hold things back and then just let it cut loose in that explosive sort of way as it would break right up. I mean, just completely spread out across the page in that way. Mm -hmm. And that was the magic of people with a design background, meeting people with artistic abilities and, uh, yeah, and demented writers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those pictures certainly bring to life the, the stories, absolutely. So a little while ago you were talking about uh, people like Blake and myself going back to the book and uh, rereading the book but also rereading particular stories. And and so some of my favourites have been, as we've been talking about, the Borley Rectory story and 
Jeff the Talking Mongoose and the, the double page spread about Pluckley Village. So those are all the stories that have really stuck with me. So I'm curious about you. Have you reread the book? Have you looked at it again? And do you have any favorite stories in the book? Well, here's the weird thing about it is that they're, uh, in a way, the most boring spread in the book, I think, and is also the best spread in the book, which is the Pluckley, <laughs> is the village with a dozen ghosts. And mm -hmm. uh, what we what we did, in fact, that was the one time we did some original research. So we discovered that Pluckley was the most, or was referred to as the most haunted village in the entire UK. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't think the people of Pluckley were particularly aware of that, but in the literature, <laughs> okay. they were referred to as that. So at some point, David and I set off, uh, took ourselves down to Pluckley and spent a day walking around the village with a great big uh, OS map, a great big, de highly detailed map, plotting where all of these different um, events had been sighted over the years. We were looking for a pattern. We were trying to figure out if they, they all clumped together in some way or there was a there was a kind of logic to it. So, uh, and we had a camera with us. I can't remember whether it was myself or David taking pictures at the time. Uh, and we were snapping away happily. And we came back with these really boring pictures. The people who noticed us, not that many people did. It was a very quiet dormitory sort of village about, I don't know, 30 miles outside of London. Uh, I think they mistook us for estate agents. They thought we were sizing <laughs> the place up with a view to selling houses. That was, I think, we certainly would have. We would certainly not have let on we had anything to do with the ghosts. We would. Have, you know, so there we were, estate agents wandering around, taking pictures of odd bits and pieces, and then we laid it out on the map, and with the story and the map and the direct. There's a little compass direction in there, north, south, east, west. So this whole thing looks like it's really important if you want to navigate your way around the village of Pluckley. Uh, I hope they, I hope the local pub got tons of business from people <laughs> who read this and went down there to take a look and got thirsty after walking around, <laughs> looking at all of these slightly boring houses and stuff. So we took the most boring thing you can imagine and made it rather lively. And I thought that was that was rather, I thought that was rather cool at the time. But I have to say, things like the haunted house, which isn't isn't Borley Rectory, as a matter of fact, uh, the story there is Borley Rectory. At the time, uh, I was aware that there was a bit of litigation. The members of the family who had lived or owned Borley Rectory were litigating people at some point who were I don't know what referring to it. There was there was something contentious. I got the uh, a strong impression there was still a court case traveling through the courts and so on, and I didn't want to touch it. So there's a haunted house, as in, like a Borley Rectory, but the word Borley Rectory never appears. So we took about, you know, 10 different haunted house stories and poured them into a single house. So It's still house, morally recognizable. But that's just because it's got, it's had, it's had a good marketing team. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love the story about the uh, uh, person coming out of the portrait of them on the, on the wall, the person, the ghost materializing. That's a good one. And I love, of course, people walled up behind bricks. I mean, what could mm -hmm. be one terrible way to go? <laughs> uh, I mean, just, it ticks the box for me even now. <laughs> <laughs> 
you can always imagine if you're exploring an old house, finding someone buried in the wall is one of the most yeah. scary, but yet iconic sort of like experiences, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. What surprised me going back to revisit the book was that you also include these sort of ancient Greek and ancient Roman stories. Um, and I had forgotten those were here because later on, years, decades later, I, you know, I discovered the, uh, the story of the sort of Greek uh, story of uh, the laying of a ghost and, yeah. and, and how ancient that is, that narrative about a restless spirit looking for, uh, you know, an honorable or a, 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 a what's the right word? A, a burial that's in a, in a, in a proper graveyard. Well, the, that's, that's us being intergalactic uh, archaeologists again. Uh, you know, if it happens a hundred years ago and two hundred years ago, why not a thousand years ago or two thousand? So, how far back could we take this? And that was one of the first questions we asked ourselves. If you know, if we know about Borley Rectory from the nineteen whatever twenties and thirties, and if we know about uh, some you know, pluck, you know, ghosts from the seventeen hundreds and so forth, why aren't there ghosts a thousand years ago? Why aren't there Viking ghosts? Why aren't there mm-hmm. Genghis Khan and the ghosts of the, you know, steps of Asia. There probably are stories of that. But what we were able to find, because there was a fair amount of literature around, uh, was stuff from, uh, yeah, from Greek and Roman times. And sure enough, uh, there were stories of ghosts. And uh, Chinese, same thing. The Chinese have a literature of ghosts that go way, way back. So uh, it was a delight being able to resurrect some of that and pour it in. Again, it's a bit strange, I would imagine, for kids, because you're looking at historical images that aren't familiar in any way. So, you know, we don't walk around in tunics and with our, you know, with our knees bared, unless we're Scots, of course. That's a different way. (laughs) Are there any other stories that you want to mention or talk about? At the time, I remember, I was interested in uh, the fact that so much violence seemed to be uh, attributed to ghosts. So, you know, war, wars and, and, and disasters and this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, this, you know, Captain Kidd being hung on a gibbet and a ghost <laughs> attributed to Captain Kidd, you know, with his body swaying in the wind and that sort of thing. Uh, and I was intrigued by that. And that's what led me to this idea that, well, why don't car crashes lead to ghosts and so on? Mm-hmm. So question we never were able to answer, but uh, it sort of, it opened up the door to that, that somehow violent and tragic. So that seemed to be the theme, sort of um, things of, yeah, events, events that are in some way, now it opened, again, it would be nice to think, but I found absolutely no evidence of it, that something as wonderful as missing your own wake would lead to a ghost being formed. And that it <laughs> Just the best party that you had ever missed in your life, where everyone talks about you and you've missed it because you're dead. Would that bring a person back as a ghost, just roaming the world looking for good parties? I mean, it would. <laughs> I would think so. <laughs> I'd love it if it was true. Couldn't find anything about that. <laughs> Maybe for another book. Another book. Well, most bars so are you- full of spirits, so. We didn't give you any preparation for this. I apologize. I think normally we, I try to give people a heads up, but we do have a sort of a signature finale question that we like to ask, which is, what is your favorite monster? What's my favorite monster? Yeah. Oh, that's an interesting one. Uh, a behinder. Ooh, that's a great one. Yeah. Are you a fan of Manly Wade Wellman? 
Uh, well, here's the thing. Uh, when I was a kid in, uh, in Canada, in uh, Quebec, we used to go and uh, summer camp. So we go up into the woods and mess around and spend a month uh, canoeing down rivers and stuff like that. So we'd be sitting around the campfires and we'd be telling stories. And one of the, well, one of the spooky stories that I guess one of the counselors might have told us or one of the kids, I can't remember anymore, was about something called a behinder. So you're walking in the woods, you're by yourself, you don't hear anything else treading, but you get that feeling, the hair on the back of your neck is just standing up. You know you're being followed, you know it's not good What's why you're being followed, this is not someone benign giving you presents or snacks or anything wonderful like that, this is a bit evil and all of that, and you turn around as fast as you can and you see absolutely nothing. But your hair at the back of your neck is still standing up. That's because a behinder who moves faster than you can turn your head is following you. And you can only feel they'll be behind you all the time that you're in those woods. The only thing you can do is get out real, real fast. That's a behinder. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's the one good monster one. that stayed with me all through adulthood. And I'm sure mm-hmm. I bored my kids at various times <laughs> telling the story of the behinder. <laughs> so I'm going to have to ask uh, your children, do they love the book and do they love the stories? They, they grew up with a father who sat in another room typing a lot. And uh, <laughs> they just thought that was dad at work. And uh, and uh, and every now and again, dad would appear with a pile of books and would hand them out. But they were dad's <laughs> books and they weren't really that interesting because, you know, they'd rather have whatever book they'd found in the library, not one that came from dad. So I think their take on what I did was, uh, useful, but we'd rather not know. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> I, 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 I shudder at the thought that my children are not prepared to face every kind of monster because they, they don't listen to my show. It's like they know they make time for their quiet. That you can't hear them right now, but they're they're being very good. But yeah. they they don't listen, and so either you know there's so many yeah, monsters they're not ready for. Don't listen. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Friends don't listen. <laughs> kids, have, kids have their own take. It's nice yeah. if they like it, if they refer to it. They certainly were showered with books as youngsters, but uh, whether or not they remember them, no idea. <laughs> I'll have yeah. to ask them sometime. Well, I, I hope we um, I hope we made this clear, but just in case we didn't get it across, uh, thank you so much to you mm-hmm. and your team for having worked on this book. It, it's been well, so good and so influential. I'm so glad so to see inspiring. it printing. Yeah, mm-hmm. I hope you're well, being that- remunerated in some way by the re-release of it. But I, I just uh, we really appreciate it. People are falling over in the street when they see me come. The Queen has come over for tea. Uh, oh, fantastic. Good, good. statues going up <laughs> with my name on them. Other than that, no, not much. <laughs> fantastic. Well, thank you for making time for us today. Yeah. Yeah, this has been so wonderful to, to meet you and talk with you today. This is just really exciting for us. Yeah. Wonderful. It's good uh, to be able to say thanks. Thanks. Well, yeah, thanks. yeah. Thank you. Monster Dog. You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. You just heard an interview with Christopher Maynard, author of the Osborne Book of Ghosts. I'll put a link in the show notes to the reissue of this book by Osborne. It's a terrific intro to the world of the spooky and strange for any child. This is the commercial-free Patreon edition of this show. 
Because of the editing constraints I mentioned at the top of the episode, regular listeners are also going to get this version. I simply don't have the time to do the edits I need to do for two different versions. If you're not a patron and you like the experience of hearing this show without all the inserted pleas for support, do consider supporting us at patreon.com forward slash monster talk. Thanks again to all those who are patrons. You help make Halloween possible here at Monster Talk Mansion. You know, I don't think I've ever called my home that before, but after seeing my daughters playing chess by candlelight while the wild winds blew the trees in the night outside, it seemed about right. Again, from Karen and me, we wish you a very happy and spooky Halloween. Monster Talk theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. Thank you so much for listening. been a Monster House presentation.